Welcome to the AWPT Podcast, a safe space for personal trainers and coaches who want to learn, grow, and feel heard in the fitness industry. Each week, we'll bring you industry-relevant discussions on all things coaching, mindset, and professional development, empowering you with the tools to be a competent and confident coach. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the AWPT podcast. This week, Amy is joining us once again. Amy, our head of nutrition education here at AWPT, and we're going to be talking all about carbs and fasting and women and all of the myths and misconceptions that we face as women or women face, I should say, around food and dieting um, and what you need to know to make sure that you are a competent coach when it comes to teaching and coaching your female clients. But before we do that, hi, Amy. Welcome back. <laughs> hey, <sorry laughs> myself in. Um, it's a late arvo session for us too so we'll see how the brain capacity goes oh my god yeah we were both just saying okay cool 3pm coffees done tick (laughs) well I didn't caffeine but I definitely had glucose so on the topic of fasting I definitely had some carbs for my brain good to go exactly yep Carbs and coffee is I think the perfect combination (laughs) for (laughs) for what's the word droning no maybe not (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, usually we're not, um, afternoon podcasters. The brain is definitely sharper, at least for me in the morning. I don't ever understand, you know, those people that are like, I'm going to do it all nighter. I'm like, my brain clocks off at two. (laughs) Anything after that? Good luck to you. And even when someone's like, go out to dinner at like 7pm. I'm like, excuse me. I'm I'm in bed ready. I'm reading. Yeah, truly, (laughs) truly. So let's jump straight into it. I think today. What is one of the biggest things that you have heard from your female clients when it comes to just bullshit about food? (laughs) I think it's a lot of following what they see on like what I eat on a day, especially on Instagram or Mm -hmm. an influencer. And, you know, there is a lot of claims around, I don't have time to eat in the morning, so I'm just going to have a coffee or I'm just going to have OxyShred or whatever else it is. So first of all, I think one thing to keep in mind is that energy availability isn't just have I had the total amount of calories I need per day. It is also have I had enough energy throughout the day through my meals as well. And that also comes down to carbohydrate availability too, which is our preferred energy source. So we often think from a like a body sign, if I have a regular menstrual bleed, I must be quite healthy, but mm. your bleed is only one part. So that's your your lining shedding essentially, but it doesn't actually say whether you actually ovulated. So typically with my clients, I also track their ovulation. The reason I bring this up is the biggest part, I guess, when it comes to states of low energy availability is knowing that you need to ovulate. You need to see ovulation discharge, you need to see a temperature shift, and obviously this is going to affect your mood and everything else as well. So making sure you're tracking your ovulation and that you are seeing discharge is really important, but also making sure the consistency is there, your temperature changes there, your mood changes are there. Um, And that also comes from having one, carbohydrates, but also adequate energy in general. What is important for women especially to understand is there is two facets to this. Energy availability is the food you eat, but it's also the glucose makeup is going to be what affects your ovulation the most. So when we look at 
signs of someone not eating enough. We might see things like dry skin, low mood, low libido. Um, we might also see um, poor performance in the gym um, and maybe like they moisturize a lot. So we can cover up a lot of things of being like, oh, well, I've had to do a hair treatment this week and I did extra moisturizer and I have shellac nails or whatever it is. Like we can cover up, I guess, a lot of the signs of it, but it might also be like darkening under the eyes. Um, someone who their eyes aren't quite as bright, like they just look a little bit duller or they're using a little bit more makeup than they normally would to kind of feel as their best. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things you can look for is menstrual dysfunction, as I said, so not necessarily getting a bleed or not necessarily getting ovulation discharge. If you were to get a bone scan or a DEXA scan, you might have low bone mineral density because we, when we test calcium in the blood, it's not accurate because any calcium that's needed is drawn from the bones. So if you don't have enough calcium in the diet, your body will go in and take it out of your bones, right? So the true way to know calcium amount is actually a bone scan. And now this is really important for women as they age, especially preventing osteoporosis, osteopenia and stuff like that too. So this lack of calcium is also going to affect our muscle contraction um, and again, our overall well-being as well. What are some ways just quickly that people can get more calcium into their diet? Because I know when we think of calcium, we immediately go to milk and dairy. Um, But then I know these days so many people are using dairy alternatives for Mm -hmm. various different reasons. What are some other ways that people can increase their calcium intake? No one's going to like this answer, but... I swear to God, if it's sardines. (laughs) (laughs) Sardines, mackerel, salmon with bones. um, They are your richest sources more than... And also seeds, but you'd obviously have to eat a lot more seeds. Um, (laughs) But you can blend it up. So I remember one point, this is when I was in biohacking days. I don't recommend this. There's um, a can of salmon with bones in it. Literally, what I ate in the morning was I'd wake up and just eat salmon with bones. It's like crunching on plastic. I was like, this shouldn't be normal. I was like dry reaching. Don't do that. That was like for stupid sakes. Um, But yeah, you can obviously blend like sardines, mackerel, stuff like that up into liquid with eggs. So you don't actually get any texture because I think it's more the texture and the look that throws people out. Um, What you do find though is obviously there is calcium fortified plant milks. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that the calcium type they're using, I think it's calcium carbonate, it's poorly absorbed and it's not what we actually need. So it's like a, a claim mm-hmm. on food to say like, you know, this is really high in calcium. And if they want to make a nutritional claim, yes, it is. But the absorption isn't as good if it was in whole foods. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the issue people have with dairy, unless of course there's a lactose intolerance or an A2 protein issue, um, is that the absorption and availability isn't necessarily the same as if it was in a a plant product. So different seeds can definitely help. Um, And then obviously there is supplementation should you require it. But again, that depends on brands. Um, Shameless plug. I do like uh, Naturobest, N-A-T-U-R-O-B-E-S-T, as far as they have a vitamin K2 calcium supplement, which is a powder. Um, But again, if you can eat whole foods, please do because the absorption is always going to be better. That's how our body is kind of designed. Mm -hmm. Um, So no, it doesn't have to be dairy in saying that if the issue is with the protein specifically, not the lactose, because most people should be fine unless they're from Asian descent for lactose, um, a Jersey milk, a cow's milk or a sheep's milk is going to be easier absorbed because it has an A1 protein. So 
Um, any of those options, fishy or non-fishy, <laughs> up to you. I think it's in one of the interesting things with dairy is I find the cutting out of dairy often goes hand in hand with people that also cut out carbs or gluten and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily because they have an intolerance to mm -hmm. it or they can't absorb it properly it's because of some preconceived idea that they have that it's bad for you or it's gonna mm -hmm. like make them put on weight or just with marketing and all of that kind of stuff um because I, I mean, I've gone through that phase mm. before. Granted, I still am not a huge dairy person, but that's just because I don't like cheese. <laughs> um, um, but I, I definitely like my carbs. Um, <laughs> so no fear mongering there. But I know, yeah, just anecdotally or from what I've seen with different clients is the people often that are scared of carbs are also mm. typically scared of dairy. I think for a long time there was a lot of like orthorexic type of... Mm promotion from influencers as well of being like well it must be paleo it must be this and then, like keep in mind that paleo mm -hmm. itself typically is low in b vitamins and calcium mm -hmm. so it is a diet which isn't fully rounded to meet our nutritional needs and the other part to keep in mind is that it's not necessarily if you're getting enough it's also what is leaching that mineral so mm -hmm. things like excess amounts of caffeine is also going to leach our calcium and our magnesium and our zinc right <laughs> so it's a combo if you're not really if you're like oh i'm sticking to this plant milk which is full of emulsifiers and vegetable oils which is you know wrecking my gut lining but i'm also having a shit ton of caffeine then yeah you're your health status and nutrient status isn't going to be great. Mm -hmm. um, and this, you know, that has a knock-on effect to everything else because what affects one nutrient in our body affects the absorption of so many other things as well, which is why we see interactions between something like zinc and iron and mm -hmm. the absorption of those or copper and zinc. So what works best is typically whole food based and minimizing as many uh, adversaries, which are the things that like leach your minerals um, as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I would typically see ideally sardines, mackerel or Jersey sheep or um, goat's milk, ideally for preferences of calcium. You can hide it if you want to. That's mm -hmm. my preference. I'm not exactly the fishiest person. Um, but yeah, I guess that's a nutrient specific and this even comes down to energy availability. Sometimes it's that you have adequate energy availability, but not adequate nutrient status. So mm -hmm making sure yeah go and get a bone mineral density scan and see where your calcium levels are as well but making sure you're having variety in your diet is best way one to ensure that you're getting adequate nutrients and you're not compounding having excess of one which is going to deplete yeah. another um, but it also comes down to obviously regular meal timing as well and keeping things interesting you don't have to change your food every week like you yeah. don't have to be a chef like I'm literally the laziest nutritionist possible <laughs> um but it's that say every couple of weeks you're changing what your food sources are and um trying to get as much variety in your proteins in your starches and also in your plants that you're having too um omega-3 base for fats is typically most important or polyunsaturated fatty acids um but these are I think we often think and I see this very often with people in fitness is they're like, oh, I must be low in this nutrient because I feel like shit. Yeah. But often it's your low in energy overall and, and the total caloric amount you're having is mm. insufficient. And I also see these what I eat on a day for building and what I eat on a day for maintenance and it's say 2,000 calories or 1850, 1900 to 2100. Most active women, especially since most people are hidden around 10,000 steps, most active women need between 2,200, 2,500. Most, if they have a high neat, would be up to 28, 
hundred to three thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's really not that much. Yeah. Um, when you look at like what that would look like in meals, if it's whole food based, even if there's sports specific uh shakes or uh supplements supplements and things like that too like it really isn't that much food but i think we underestimate and there's that fear of like i'm going to get fat right Mm -hmm. that we don't eat to the capacity of our maintenance and i think low energy states availability even if it's subtle it can be that you think you're eating at maintenance and you're not yeah those who have high neat so if they fidget a lot compared to somebody who has low neat who is more like a gentle giant then they can typically burn an extra 800 calories per day mm. or on average for, for that week. And people who are farm workers are an extra 1,000 calories. Yeah. So um, don't underestimate, I guess, your capacity for being able to eat a higher amount. Obviously, volume is going to matter. If it's whole foods based, it's going to feel more fulling, filling yeah. um, than if it was highly palatable kind of foods. Um, but you know, it might be that you think you're eating enough and you're like, oh, but I'm just not progressing in the gym. This, you know, I should be feeling like getting stronger each week and I'm not. And you Mm. might want to have a look at total calories that you're actually consuming. Um, And also, even if you are in a dieting phase and you think you should, you're obviously getting results and you should be performing okay. um, One thing I do see is we start to use volume foods Mm -hmm. and Volume foods typically are lower in your starches or glucose derivatives, higher in fiber. Yep. So we're getting, you know, these More high fiber greens. Yeah, and exactly. Instead of and, starchy. you know, we want to feel full because we're dieting. The problem with that is if there is inadequate amounts of glucose availability, which typically come from starches, root vegetables, mm-hmm. this also is going to affect our ovulation. So our ability to ovulate comes down to two different things. So FSH is going to stimulate a lot of our egg production. LH is going to stimulate a lot of our um, ability to actually ovulate. Now, this is kind of a, a two-prong approach, but we have, if we have insufficient glucose availability, luteinizing hormone is not going to be pulsatile in nature. Pulsatile meaning? Okay, I'm glad you are. <laughs> uh, so put it this way, everything in a female body doesn't just happen like it's not like I snap my fingers and there's this big influx of luteinizing hormone yeah it comes in small doses it's like waves Mm -hmm. so pulsatility is like riding waves yeah if that does not happen ovulation does not occur so it's both glucose availability but it's also adequate energy availability now adequate energy availability comes down to our HPA axis HPAO axis hypothalamus pituitary adrenals ovarian Mm-hmm. The reason why adequate energy availability is important, especially glucose for ovulation, but also overarching above having adequate glucose is having adequate caloric intake. Yeah, because that's that's what I was going to clarify earlier was, I guess, the difference between adequate energy intake is going to come down to making sure you're having enough calories mm-hmm. and so eating at that maintenance and that whole sort of topic about can you push your maintenance mm-hmm. to be higher than you than you think it is or than you you know want it to be um and then the adequate nutrient availability is going to be more sort of the nutrient quality of the food that you're eating and you know what's making up those calories throughout the day mm-hmm. yeah and also that you know the building of say our endometrial lining that comes down to a lot of micronutrients like our magnesium iodine our yeah. zinc and everything else as well so it might be that, you know, spotting between bleeds or we're not actually ovulating, like it comes down to nutrient availability. But overarching a lot of this is a protein called kispeptin. Now, mm-hmm. this sounds pretty, but kispeptin <laughs> is basically a regulatory uh, bridge between our brain and our reproductive system. So it's like a switch that gets things kind of started. 
-hmm. And it's heavily influenced by how much we eat. So basically when kispeptin is released um, from various parts in the brain, it basically says to your body, hey, it's, it's time to ovulate. That then goes to the brain's response with the hypothalamus and we have mm -hmm. something called gonadotropin-releasing hormone or GNRH. The response from gonadotropin-releasing hormone, I'm going to try and make it as simple <laughs> as possible, guys. It travels to the pituitary gland at the base of the brain and it acts like a messenger. And it goes, hey, like we, we got heard, like we have to actually ovulate now. And it is in, it's responsible for releasing two hormones. One is FSH, a follicle stimulating hormone, mm -hmm. and the other one is luteinizing hormone. So yeah. again, luteinizing hormone is affected by glucose, but it's also affected by kispeptin up the chain. And yeah. that's by our energy availability. Yeah. So in our ovaries, luteinizing hormone and FSH once they get there, their job is to mature the egg um, and also get ready to ovulate and release it. So FSH helps eggs mature in females and in males, it helps with the production of sperm. Luteinizing hormone is responsible for triggering ovulation and in men, it's responsible for testosterone production. So, so men have luteinizing hormones as well. Yes. Now we ovulate, we're like, bam, cool, great ovulation. Everything is in place. If we have a good ovulation, that also triggers adequate progesterone levels and that's our calmness in our luteal mm -hmm. phase. Yeah. Low levels of progesterone, you know, we see things like spotting, but also anxiety. Yeah. And I often see these <laughs> Instagramming posts about how to get more progesterone and like eat this food and all this kind of stuff. The biggest contributor to adequate progesterone is your ability to ovulate. So if you want to increase, like you can have as many herbs as you want. You can have as many yams as you want to increase <laughs> progesterone. You can put a yam cream on your skin um, or have a special herb, but it's not going to matter if you're not eating enough and you're not ovulating. Yeah. Now, another thing to keep in mind, as I said, everything in a female body is in waves. Yeah. Same with gonadotropin releasing hormones. So it doesn't just, you know, all of a sudden increase. Um, it's controlled by a feedback mechanism, but it will pulse in order to get luteinizing hormone FSH to pulse as well. Everything mm -hmm. in a female body pulses. Mm, <laughs> <laughs> now, some things that can affect kispeptin production includes our energy status. And we were talking about malnutrition, whether it be nutrient availability, whether it be calorie availability. Yeah. Um, obesity as well can change our feedback mechanisms for things like leptin and mm -hmm. insulin. So yep. insulin resistance, um, that can also affect our kispeptin as well. Stress, especially chronic stress. And this can be physiological stress. So it doesn't have to be, well, it can be psychological when you're going through a really stressful time, but physiologically dieting is stressful. Dieting and the high um, intensity exercise as yeah. well, yeah? Yeah, and compounding, I guess, chronic, uh, like stress hormones one on top of the other. Um, a hormonal imbalance as well can change um, our kispeptin secretion. This is really important when we see things like PCOS. PCOS women actually have higher amounts of kispeptin. So this is why they, one theory of why they produce more gonadotropin-releasing hormone and why they might get these, you know, higher levels of eggs essentially as well. So PCOS women typically have more follicles. Mm -hmm. So... The quality isn't there, but the amount is there. But Interesting. I didn't know that about PCOS. That no. The women with PCOS have more eggs or they just have more follicles? More follicles. I yeah. wouldn't necessarily call the... Like, whenever it comes to fertility, it's not about number. It's about quality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, the amount produces these little smaller follicles, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yes, there's a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> but it, they're a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. um, now... When we talk about stress as well, and that physiological stress, that can be skipping a meal. That can be going into training fasted. That can be, you know, working above your capability to recover from, right? Now, 
An interesting thing with PCOS and having potentially higher kisspeptin levels is this would probably be the only set of females that I say, hey, you might actually do well from periods of time-restricted eating to affect kisspeptin, right? Interesting. So this is looking reverse in the other way around. Yeah. For most women, especially if, and there's so many people who are misdiagnosed PCOS, just double check it's not hypothalamic amenorrhea or secondary amenorrhea. Yeah. Um, obviously, you can look at Rotterdam criteria for PCOS anyway. Um, and making sure it's not post-pill PCOS. That's a different category. But um, all these different things kind of affect our kisspeptin production and that kisspeptin is going to affect our hypothalamus and our ability to connect, you know, brain reproductive system mm -hmm. and our ability to ovulate and everything else as well. The other thing that can affect um, our kisspeptin levels is obviously genetic factors if there's underlying issues, but environmental toxins. So this is things like BPA and plastics, um, and it's also uh, like phthalates in plastics as well, and pesticides and heavy metals like lead, mercury, mm -hmm. cadmium. So making sure you're eating out of glass, you're heating in glass, you're storing food in glass, um, or um, stainless steel for water bottles and stuff like that too. So all these things, and women are gonna be more sensitive to changes in kisspeptin to men because we have so many multiple functions in our body and different various hormones and, you know, our body is technically made to hold a child. So yeah. the sensitivity of that is going to change if we're in a life or death situation perceived by our body or fight or flight response, that's going to be shut off. Yeah. You know, that's one of the first things to go like, cool, we want her to survive. We don't really care about procreation at this time because it yeah. doesn't feel like a safe time to actually have a child. Yeah. Um, sleep can also change your kisspeptin production, especially if there's irregular sleep patterns or... Um, sleep apnea, um, obviously insomnia or any kind of chronic insomnia, um, and age is also going to change that as well. So, so many factors, but yeah. I guess putting it down in, in basic terms is one, making sure you have ovulation discharge as a temperature shift, making sure there's a starch, root vegetable, grain each meal, yeah. um, and also making sure that those meal spacings are, say, every three to four hours. So... Um, just because you can get away with backloading calories doesn't mean it's the safest thing, one, for your overall body's health, um, but also long-term fertility and making sure later on in life, even if you're not prepared, that you have the ability to have a child. Yeah. And the ability, even if you choose not to have children, your healthiest body is going to be the one which is most fertile because that means you have adequate nutrient availability, adequate energy availability, and generally like the optimal health for a female. Yeah, interesting. I think... So maybe we go into a little bit about this idea of fasting using, you know, everything that we've just talked about as sort of the backbone to that, because I think sometimes obviously people fast on purpose. Sometimes people fast mm. accidentally just because they, you know, say that they're too time poor to, to eat, but maybe you can touch on why that can be so damaging um, in terms of, you touched on there sort of the carb backloading because I know in the past I've heard that carb backloading can be quite helpful as a form of um, like helping with sleep as well, mm -hmm. like having higher carb meals at night versus in the morning. It's one of the things that I hear, to be fair, the opposite of that so much from middle-aged women. So whether mm -hmm. or not they're postmenopausal, um, I never know if it is um, just – Fear like fear mongering that mm -hmm. they've received in terms of marketing and all of that kind of stuff or if it's an actual experience for them but you always hear that like oh 
I just, I can't eat super heavy foods at night. Like I just mm. can't do it. Da, 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 da. Um, is that because postmenopause or, or slightly older women struggle to process carbs or calories differently or is it, do you um, think? It's, yes, they definitely, it's not, I wouldn't say struggle is that we have, so estrogen is amazing for leptin and insulin sensitivity. As that declines, especially perial postmenopause, it is, you know, obviously we're going to have lower insulin sensitivity. So getting menopausal women or peri-postmenopausal women to walk after having a meal improves insulin sensitivity, same mm -hmm. as if they were having metformin. So one, there's no nutrient deficiency from having metformin, but getting them to walk after meals. Mm -hmm. But it's also that the lower amount of uh, progesterone and other hormones also changes our motility. So their gastric function and their emptying of their bowels might be slower. So mm -hmm. it can see things like a loss of elasticity in their gut. Mm -hmm. So they might just find that those smaller meals seem to really help because they're like, oh, like I can't really process a lot. It's a heavy meal. Yeah. Um, but also having lack of insulin sensitivity and you'll find that they're drawn more towards like, I want a sweet treat. Yeah. But they'll be like, oh, I can't eat a lot. I'm just going to have this small portion. What happens with insulin sensitivity as well is that you you crave these things because you're like, well, I'm not getting the glucose I need, but you don't necessarily get the satiety response from it. One, because we have less leptin sensitivity, but also less insulin sensitivity as we age or as estrogen declines. Mm -hmm. So they're not completely wrong in thinking. I would still obviously want them to have carbohydrates around when they're most active to help with insulin sensitivity, which typically, mm -hmm. you know, in the middle of the day. would be in the middle of the day or in the morning if they're going out for a walk or, or yep. whatever they're doing. Like personally, I am a nana at heart. So like at nighttime, I'm going to be sleeping. Yeah. But, <laughs> but as far as, you know, getting glucose or getting insulin to cross or melatonin to cross the blood brain barrier to induce sleep, we do need a, a carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Now, carbs isn't necessarily having like donuts and and having cereal or having pasta rice and pasta yeah. it would mean that menopause women might need to have more like a lower glycemic load so they're mm -hmm. say having a sweet um, a sweet potato but it's also com food combining like having other mm -hmm. vegetables there as well having a protein source um, and a fat source as well so more frequent meals might be okay in in smaller amounts but i would still get them to have their carbohydrates around their active times mm -hmm. or to combine resistance training prior to having their, their um, glucose kind of rich meals or their carb rich meals. Um, but it's also training, like you train your body how mm -hmm. hungry you are. You train your body like to want food. Yeah. So if you're continually decreasing your food, calories go down, metabolic rate goes down too. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sometimes behavioral patterns that have been ingrained for a long period of time. Um, and I guess the other one with food timing is you've got to keep in mind it takes about an hour and 15 minutes for a migrating motor complex which is our housekeeper or a little sweeper mm -hmm. to clear out old uh, food debris but also worn out cells from our gastrointestinal tract so given that it takes an hour and 15 minutes for one cycle we want at least two this is yeah. why I don't like snacking people snacking I guess in less than two hours or having meals mm -hmm. in less than two hours because you don't get that time to clean out all that debris now when we have old worn out cells that aren't cleaned up when we have old food debris we say fermentation of bacteria but we also see poor absorption mm -hmm. in our, our nutrients as well so we want a really healthy gut lining but we also want a really robust and muscularly strong kind of 
um, gastrointestinal tract to push through food through. Yep. And the way you do that is to train it with a certain amount of volume for our stretch receptors, but yep. you know, also making sure you have at least three hours between meals so we can get that cleaning to kind of occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So it's all, it's finding the balance between you know accidental fasting, like going too long in between mm. meals and eating too frequently and Mm. so you're sort of suggesting that maybe that sweet spot is you know every three hours having something um whether that's a big meal or not but making sure that in those three hour kind of periods like in each meal there is some form of carb um with that as well and with carb and carb sensitivity as well um I know, again, whether it's anecdotally or or not, obviously some people respond better to higher carb diets than others. Mm -hmm. Is that based on, like I can use myself for an example, I thrive very well on a higher Mm. carb diet. Like I know when I did the mentorship with Kayla, um, the AWPT mentorship, she just kept increasing my carbs and I just (laughs) annoyingly for other people maybe just kept getting like leaner if you will yeah um is that or would that be because of a particular hormonal response in me or yeah what's the reasoning behind that um great question so there's genes obviously and that loads gun but it's also it takes two to four weeks if not a little bit longer to change over a lot of the um enzymes that we need to break down food so what we train our body obviously adapts to that's why when Mm -hmm. people take out lactose they eventually get a lactose intolerance right that's what i'm so unless of course it's a gene based like (laughs) yeah like i'm good with that um whereas like asian or chinese descent they typically don't do well with lactose in general from a gene perspective yeah but i also find and this may be anecdotal from my end Mm -hmm. is that the higher the person's nervous uh what's the word i'm looking for like your nervous drive city like mm-hmm. say for example I'm a very I have a high nervous tone to yeah me, right mm-hmm. and I would say yours pretty similar yeah. so I find that people who need glucose the most so things that we typically need it for like 100% is going to be our brain our nervous system red blood cells mm-hmm. if I find someone who typically talks quicker they think a lot they're a little bit more anxiety based they will thrive on carbohydrates because we need to nurture that response, right? And their sympathetic tone, that's what I was looking for. Um, we need to obviously nurture that to kind of like dampen that kind of response. Mm-hmm. And that does help with uh, our serotonin and being able to balance all of those things as well, as well as um, glutamate. So it depends, one, on your genes, two, what you train, and also depending, I personally think, on your nervous system. That's so interesting because, yeah, I mean, definitely I would agree that <laughs> relatively highly strung <laughs> um, but I guess there's a benefit to that because it means I can eat a shit ton of carbs and be fine exactly so, you know even some you lose some <laughs> exactly and I guess the other fourth one to keep in mind is like how do you train what do you do mm-hmm. because glucose is always going to be um varied like it can help with our endurance sports it can help with resistance training it can help with speed sports and everything else it's very versatile Mm. so it's versatile in cognitive brain function it's versatile in different modalities of training um so athletes are always going to thrive more on a higher carbohydrate diet some people even if they go uh, super low carb or keto, they may not switch to using ketones and that may be based mm. on their genes. So this is why some people feel sick if they were to try keto. By the way, no one try keto. <laughs> that is my preface. Yeah. But, you know, I think we assume that having no carbohydrates and having um, ketones or ketone derivatives, ketone 
shakes and stuff can definitely help, but some people just won't switch. Um, so I think it's just because you can do something, and this is probably the overarching theme on any nutritional protocol, yeah. doesn't mean you should. Just because yeah. you can feel your just because you can restrict your carbs to to later in the day or just because you can, you know, eat jelly light and protein bars or like whatever else it is or custards and shit like that or it doesn't mean you should. Whole foods is always going to be best. And if you are time poor, keep in mind what we're looking for is an overall caloric amount and overall carb, protein, fat amount per meal. So it could be that like I have very busy clients as well and they might just have like um, a protein shake, coconut water post-training, some uh, like a piece of fruit or whatever it is. And beforehand, they might have something like rice milk, oat milk, protein, EAA, yeah. um, or it's still a high carb amount and it's still protein amount, but it's an on-the-go. Yeah. And they could put it in a bottle in the night before in the fridge. Like it doesn't have to be like I sat down and made a whole meal. Yeah. It just has to be you have some kind of fuel in your body. Yeah. Well, that's even what you were saying before in terms of like, yeah, you don't have to be a chef to be making meals that are, you know, nutritionally dense um, mm. and like, calorically appropriate for the meal that you're having um and I think that's such a big takeaway because I think it's such a cop-out for people to be like oh I'm too busy I just I I can't I just have to have a coffee in the morning because I just don't have time or what about people that use the excuse of I'm just not hungry in the morning again it's a trained response right but um, cortisol itself is going to partially suppress appetite. So it's adenosine. Um, it, it prevents the feeling of feeling tired, right? Um, so if we prevent that feeling of feeling tired and we're getting there's more mobilization of um, stored glucose from glycogen in our body, you know, we're going to partially think that we're fueled and we're energetic. That doesn't mean it's the case. It means that later you'll probably feel the, the effects of that depleted glycogen. You're going to be ravenously hungry. You're going to crave things. So the other one, especially when it comes to fasting, is and we did do a reel on this coming up. But um, you know, your change of electrolytes, like women's electrolyte balance, is going to change throughout their menstrual cycle. So if you are adding something like low carbohydrates and it's diuretic and you're also getting rid of electrolytes as well as your fuels, like you're obviously not going to perform at your best, um, but you're not going to feel your best because electrolytes and hydration itself isn't just water, it's adequate electrolyte balance. And in our luteal phase where we're kicking out more salt, if you're combining that with not having any fuel in the morning, not having any protein carbs, um, things like that too, and you're getting that saltier sweat, you know, cognitively you're not going to perform well and training-wise you're not going to perform well either. Um, and just on that, you just made me think of it when you said, like, feeling ravenous. Are <laughs> <laughs> <Are> you hungry? <laughs> Not right now because I did stuff my face before with lots of carbs. But um, I feel like we've talked a lot about ovulation in particular when it comes to, you know, that being a vital sign. What about in terms of other phases of the cycle? I know we've touched on it in various posts before um, in terms of hunger levels throughout the course of the cycle I know I'm like due for my period any second and this week I could eat a literal (laughs) family of horses (laughs) and sometimes it's you know not as bad like some cycles I'm all right this month I don't know what it is but I just can't stop eating (laughs) (laughs) it's even funnier because I got my uh, menses today and I was like relating hard (laughs) (laughs) so excited um, and yeah, yesterday morning I woke up and I was like, I am starving. And it's a really good thing to honor your hunger. But if you know it is cyclically going to happen, rather than being like getting to the point where you're so hungry, just 
make bigger meals. Like you're better off getting more nutrients in by eating a bigger whole food meal than you are trying to, you know, be good in quotation marks, stick to your diet and then end up binging on something else, which is maybe highly palatable, full, more nutrient poor. Um, And your hunger, as far as like menstrual cycle, your hunger will drop when your hormones do. So for some people, this is prior to menses. For other people, it's two or three days into their bleed. Um, and that 3 to 5% increase in metabolic rate that occurs post-ovulation, again, is based on progesterone. So depending on the amount of progesterone that's released, um, will also tell us your, your overall hunger as well. So the metabolic impact of somebody not ovulating is that they might not get that hunger prior to menses. But again it's going to change and it's knowing that your body will change but what you're looking for is cyclical consistency as much as you can control so um i guess taking note of yeah your hunger um discharge temperature shifts and honoring that hunger with good food if you're like i'm really hungry what i need is chocolate you're like "Mm, do i or do i need higher omega-3s, higher magnesium, higher zinc in the week leading up to my cycle, which is going to decrease prostaglandins and a lot of the cramping and um, negative symptoms associated with our menstrual cycle um, and obviously put you in a position to feel better over that time. So it's important important to honour the hunger, but it's also important to honour the need for nutrients prior to menses as well. Yeah, no, I love that. So it's about sort of preparing for it beforehand and obviously when it comes to that linking things even back to the beginning in terms of ovulation, because obviously, unless it's, you know, a false bleed or whatnot, because if you're not ovulating in theory, you wouldn't be like menstruating either uh, or bleeding. Interesting. We'll touch on that. (laughs) Um, But um, in order to understand, I guess, cycles and patterns in your cycle, you need to have somewhat of a regular cycle that makes sense Mm. so you know knowing in order to know that oh yeah the week before my cycle I'm typically a bit hungry or I experience these symptoms Mm. then you probably need to have some kind of regular cycle to begin with which would mean that you need to be eating enough you need to be doing all of these things that we've said in the episode in order to be regular Mm. yeah definitely and keep in mind that it's you know 90 to 120 days prior to ovulation, which determines the quality of that ovulation and subsequent menses. Now, when it comes to the difference between your menstrual cycle and your ovarian, you can bleed without ovulating. So the thickening of your lining is, say, estrogen-based, whereas luteinizing hormone affecting more ovulation. So you can still have a bleed and be like, oh, I have a regular bleed, but that's your endometrial lining. That's your um, ovarian cycle, not necessarily your menstrual cycle, which is based on hormones. Um, So the three months prior to your ovulation, that determines the quality. So whether that be that you haven't had enough omega-3s, you're getting more cramping, you're getting more lower back pain, um, maybe more headaches, migraines, if you've had, say, low iodine or um, there's not enough or adequate estrogen clearance, you know, your symptoms are going to be based on your three months. If your three months prior or your 90 to 120 days prior is filled with shitty food, traveling or disrupted sleep or high stress yeah like relationship issues like all that kind of stuff too that's going to be reflected not at the time but in the months to come Mm. in the week prior in the two weeks prior you can obviously do things to offset that so say for example as i said you can have adequate amounts of omega-3s or increase your omega-3 consumption your zinc and your magnesium to decrease the effect of say for example prostaglandins or any cramping um estrogen clearance everything else as well 
but it's always going to be that you're paying it forward in the months beforehand to feel better at the time. My favorite thing, especially with clients, is when they, you know, they report back, oh my gosh, I got my, my menses and I had no idea it was coming. I just like, well, they knew obviously, yeah. but like no symptoms. And obviously they get really good at tracking ovulation too, because I ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm seeing more now is that the ovulation for people is getting worse, not the menses. Um, so that's more looking at our estrogen clearance, and everything else as well, because that's our highest peak of estrogen. Um, but yeah, it is possible that you are having a regular bleed, which is your ovarian cycle and having that endometrial lining shed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are ovulating. So that's looking at discharge, looking at temperature changes, looking at libido changes too. So I prefer to have clients track in something like Kindara um, because it doesn't predict. Well, you don't want to have an app that predicts your bleed or your symptoms or your, your, your menses because you want to track it yourself so you can look for patterns, you can look for changes, you can look for, I guess, oh my gosh, I didn't realize three months prior, like I had that breakup and then my next three months later, my ovulation was shitty or I didn't ovulate or whatever it is. You know, you want to look for patterns, but you don't want something that tells you what's happening because that takes you away and you're disconnected from your body, right? Yeah. You're not reading the signs, you're being told what you should be feeling. Yeah. No, I love that because it's interesting even again, if I use myself as an example, sometimes, especially it's more so to do with ovulation. Um, I will be like midway through a cycle and I'm like, Oh, I feel something going on. Like, (laughs) like, yeah, there's whether it's libido stuff, but usually it's, I almost feel like I can feel the egg drop. (laughs) I'm like, Oh, it's like on the right side this month or it's on the left side. Like you can feel it. And then I go into the app and it's often like, oh, you're ovulating. I'm like, yes, I got it right. Like I, <laughs> I knew I felt something. But then, you know, on the other side of things, because I have quite an irregular cycle, often I'll look at my app and it's predicting a bleed. And then, you know, for like three weeks, I'm waiting for that bleed to happen. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, but I have no symptoms yet. I'm like, what do I do? Like, do I need to start planning for a bleed? Like, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and then like, to <laughs> Do you know what? Sometimes you have to. Like, I'm like, I'm going on holidays. Like, what am I packing? Um, But, yeah. And then, like, two weeks later, I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to experience some sort of breast tenderness. So, like, clue, you are wrong. (laughs) Um, I got stressed. I've been stressed for the last two weeks about a bleed for no reason. Um, But, yeah, I think I – what was the name of the app? Well, put it on the um, show notes, maybe. Um, Kindara, so K-I-N-D-A-R-A, I I have to spell in my head. Um, But I think the other thing with that is like, yes, honor your hunger, but also this is really important to women to connect to their body and you'll notice different things. Like follicular phase, you you might be a little bit more bubbly. Your face looks a lot fuller. You look a lot brighter. You're actually more attractive to men as well. Like you'll be like, oh, I'm turning heads. This is a bit strange. Um, And luteal phase, I call it pruny. Um, (laughs) But it's also we're kicking out more sodium, right? So we look a little bit leaner potentially, but um, we're a little bit hungrier and we're probably not as nice to be around. So, (laughs) but it depends again, how much you honor that. So for me, I'm like, okay, if I have special events, um, or things I really need good cognitive function for, I'll try to put it in my follicular phase. A lot of my socialising and everything else I try to do to more follicular phase, whereas luteal phase is maybe a little bit more introverted and I might do more book work, I might do more e-books, I'll do like, you know, a little bit more of the back end of my business yeah. versus trying to do in the front end, which is more in my follicular phase. Um, yeah, it, it is different depending on the person and there's no one perfect type. You know, you're... 
what will change menstrual cycle wise is going to be different for you for somebody else and everything else the time that you experience menopause is largely going to be based on your parents too right so or like your mom I should say not your dad (laughs) (laughs) so you can ask them like when did you first experience like changes in menstrual cycle where did you first experience a lack of ovulation discharge um you know when was because again, menopause is one specific day in time. It's not a time period. It's you know the, your last cycle has been over twelve months. Yeah. So um, I think we have this idea that menopause is like this whole state of ten years. But yeah. there's perimenopause and then there's postmenopause. Like yeah. it's you know ooh, one day in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know it's I guess understanding different phases of your cycle is important, but also nurturing that. And that comes down to energy availability. That comes down to glucose availability. It comes down to being disciplined you don't have to feel like eating in the morning but you have to be disciplined to honor what your body needs at that time because you're paying it forward for, for years to come you're paying it forward not only for your own health your own menopausal stages as well but you're also when you're pregnant you're also holding the eggs of your grandchild right so if you have a female inside your womb <laughs> her eggs is a, yeah 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 it's like two generations down right so your, what you do to your body affects the next two generations as well. So I think it's in remembering that too in the natural state of having good fertility, having a quote-unquote good menstrual cycle, cyclicality and low pain and everything else as well. That should be normal. Even whether you intend to have children, whether you don't, that is the healthiest state your body can be in. I think that is probably the perfect place to wrap up this podcast there's been so much information as always whenever I do a podcast with Amy I'm like sitting here on the floor (laughs) and just having my mind blown every like five minutes last podcast was all about you know zinc and sardines and (laughs) (laughs) and this week it's all about carbs I'm like cool yep you don't have to tell me twice to eat my carbs um but then yeah so many golden nuggets around menstruation around um nutrient availability nutrient density in the food and making sure that we are as you say paying it forward and the stuff that we do now whether it's for ourselves but also most importantly for our clients as well Actually, I should say that the other way around for our, for our clients but most importantly for ourselves <laughs> um yeah making sure that we are doing things now for the benefit of our future self um whether that's our future self in three months when it comes to you know menstrual cycle or whether that's our future self for you know, several years down the track, if and when you want to have children, um, but also just, you know, aging in general, um, making sure the bone density, all of that kind of stuff is there. Um, But I think that probably wraps things up. Is there anything else that you wanted to finish with? No, just that if this has sparked your interest, we obviously have our September semester three female specific nutrition course coming up so i would definitely highly recommend enrolling one because i'm teaching you um but also because if you want to learn more this is only one caveat of females obviously we know there's so many different subtypes of women and obviously different client types and the best way to learn is by being in a situation where you are surrounded by people who are learning when you do have the ability to ask questions it's great to listen to a podcast and take in information but I'm sure it sparked a question in your head or made you think of a particular client or yourself or your mom or your sister whoever it is and having access to myself Kayla and obviously everyone else who will be in the course is your best way to tangibly action information and if you have the information but you're not actioning in it it's kind of worthless absolutely and as amy just said you know this is a 45 minute podcast and we've just dropped so much information on one topic you know one topic and the female specific nutrition course has 12 
lectures. Imagine all of the stuff that you can learn. And then, as she said, being able to ask questions um, and workshop different ideas and talk and discuss is just going to be invaluable. Um, So as Amy said, that female-specific nutrition course starts in September. Enrollments are open now, um, which which I'll link below anyway in the show notes. But if you go to the AWPT page or Amy's page, it is in the link in bio. Um, There are payment plans available. So there's really no excuse in, you know, in my humble opinion, <laughs> to not jump into this course. No, exactly. So we will see you there. I'm just taking it as an affirmative sale. Uh, we will see you in FSN in September. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the AWPT podcast. We will chat to you next week. Thank you for listening to the AWPT podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and fellow coaches and subscribe for weekly episodes and content.